Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hey, listeners. I hope you're having a great summer and that you've been enjoying this mini-series of Speaking Soundly. We'll be back in September with our fourth full season featuring some amazing guests, including Regina Spector, Yannick Nezesagan, and Midori. In the meantime, if you're new to the show, go back and check out some of our earlier episodes featuring Emmanuel Axe, Joyce DiDonato, Christian McBride, Wynton Marsalis, Rhiannon Giddens, Rufus Wainwright, and so many more. And lastly, I want to thank our good friends at Ravinia for helping to make this interview possible. Don't miss today's guest, Aliso Weilerstein's upcoming performance at Ravinia on August 17th. She appears there with her brother and past Speaking Soundly guest, conductor Joshua Weilerstein. Get your tickets now to see them both live at ravinia.org. Aliso Weilerstein is one of the foremost cellists of our time. The MacArthur Genius Grant recipient and best-selling recording artist grew up in a famously musical household and recalls what it was like to play in a trio with her parents from the age of six. They allowed me to fully participate in rehearsals. And so it became less of a parent-child relationship just in the rehearsals. It was kind of like I was playing a role, like being a colleague. And then, of course, the, you know, the fights between us when we rehearsed were epic. But, you know, we were fighting about music. So that's good. You're listening to Speaking Soundly, a backstage pass to today's biggest stars of the music world. I'm your host, David Krause, principal trumpet of the Metropolitan Opera. During each episode, you'll hear me speak with inspiring performers about their creative process and the personal journey that led them to the stage. When my son was really young, he started the cello and his teacher gave me instructions on how to build like this preliminary cello for him by gluing a yardstick to a cereal box. And I'm looking at a picture of you right now of you playing your Rice Krispies cello box. Can you tell me who made that for you and how old you were in that picture? Yeah, for sure. Um, it was my grandmother. So but as, as you know, I, both my parents are musicians and um, at a certain point they were touring and my grandmother was taking care of me and I got, conveniently, I got chicken pox. 
And um, so she, I think, felt extra sorry for me or something. And she made me a string quartet of instruments out of cereal boxes. So she made me two violins, a viola and a cello. So I could then participate in my parents' rehearsals. They, they would often rehearse in their living room. So in that picture, I think I'm like two and a half or three, maybe. And one of my first, my earliest memories of trying to, I don't know, they, they got to some sort of climactic point and I don't know, Schumann Piano Quintet or something like that. And I was trying to scrub at this thing, trying to make a sound and I realized it didn't make any sound. So I got a bit, a bit frustrated. And then when I was around four, I asked for a real one and a, ch- and a cello teacher. And my, and my mother said, well, you're, you're young for that. But I kept asking. So then I was around four and a half, I started lessons. You start playing the cello at four and a half. And by the time you're 13, mm-hmm. you make your solo debut with the Cleveland Orchestra. Now, nine years sounds like a long time to hone a craft, but you were a child. Most kids' mm-hmm. biggest accomplishment by that age is getting braces. <laughs> but you were already playing with one of the greatest orchestras in the world. Mm-hmm. Did you feel somehow different than the other kids your age? I, yes and no, but not because of what I think you're implying, but because, yeah, I just always felt like I was odd and I didn't really fit in somehow. And so I didn't have very many friends <laughs> when I was, you know, sixth and seventh grade and in the beginning of eighth grade, I, I didn't have that many friends. I, I was kind of a strange one. I mean, it wasn't only because of my love for music, um, but also, I mean, I was small. I was, um, I don't know, I, I liked different things. And so mm-hmm. I didn't fit in there until I started the Young Artist Program at the Cleveland Institute of Music when I was in eighth grade. And then I, then I started to really make friends, you know, so all, all of us misfits were kind of together. So that was it. And, and then I made some everlasting friendships there. You know, I've been to those plain white cinder block practice rooms at the Cleveland Institute of Music where you spent hours. Pretty grim. Oh, yes. Yeah, <laughs> it's not unlike solitary confinement. <laughs> Did you enjoy that solitude? I, I loved it. Uh, yeah. Especially also, I was presented with such an incredible gift by having musician parents. I mean, also, I mean, they, they were very loving and wonderful parents anyway, but it was important for me to learn how to practice independently without my parents either helping me in the room or being in the house and knowing that I could kind of, kind of ask them something. And so I, so from the time I was 13, 14, I really wanted to learn how to practice on my own. Well, you were raised in a famously musical household. Your dad's a violinist, your mom's a pianist, your brother's a mm-hmm. conductor. What did mm-hmm. your house sound like when everybody was home practicing? It must've been pretty intense. Cacophony. <laughs> Total cacophony, but it was, yeah, it sounded like a conservatory. It's a good thing you didn't grow up in Manhattan like my kids did. I'm a trumpet player, so I, mean, I was often Ooh. relegated to the bathroom to warm up. Just well, like yeah, a, I mean, that's a different thing, huh? Yeah, it is completely. <laughs> when you were really young, you started playing in a trio with your parents. And surely they didn't know that this would become the famous Weilerstein trio that it would eventually mm-hmm. become. What do you think it was like for your parents at that time to be rehearsing chamber music with a six-year-old kid? <laughs> You'd have to ask them, I think. But they were amazing that they allowed me to fully participate in rehearsals. I mean, when I was very small, of course, they had to tell me everything. But then as I grew a bit older, they wanted me to be able to verbalize musical ideas. And so it became less of a parent-child relationship just in the rehearsals. It was kind of like I was playing a role, like being a colleague, you know. 
and that happened very naturally and or, you know organically. And then, of course, the you know the fights between us when we rehearsed were epic. But you know, you're fighting about music, so that's good. <laughs> right. I mean, it's amazing because yeah. most children don't get an opportunity to be well heard. And yes. and in this sense, you're not only being heard on your instrument, but your ideas mm -hmm. are being heard and you're collaborating. Yeah. But I want to hear more about the fighting. <laughs> you're like, I want the juicy stuff. Yeah, right. <laughs> Did that carry over to the dinner table too? No, that was important. That whatever argument we were having was relegated to the rehearsal. And we also had a role, you never go to bed angry type of, uh, type of role in the house. And when we were at the dinner table, we wouldn't talk about it. But hmm. during the rehearsal, it could get very heated. You gave an interview when you were 10 and you told the reporter that your ambition was to go around the world playing concerts with different orchestras. Oh, my God. I, I'm impressed that you found that article. It's <laughs> very cool. Yeah. And then three years later, at age 13 in Cleveland, you did just that. I mean, you yeah. had already achieved your life's ambition. Did that dawn on you at that young age? No, it didn't really occur to me. Mm. Honestly, um, although I did think in my 13 year old brain, I thought I have waited a very long time for this, which is really funny now. You know, if you take yourself back to adolescence, I mean, you feel like you've got all this experience and you know that you own the world and all that. That's how I felt. And then following that, that concert, that was when I, I signed with it at the time. It was ICM. That was when I really started my, say, performance training on the job training, let's say, uh, and I did, you know, what one week per month uh, with with uh, with regional orchestras for basically all of my high school time. So, and that that's how I learned the repertoire. Severance Hall in Cleveland is such a beautiful hall. What do you remember from that experience looking out? I was so happy. I was really, yeah. That, that I I had reached Nirvana. I was thrilled. And since you lived in Cleveland Heights, the audience must have been packed with family and friends to watch you perform. It was. In, in, <laughs> well, in that respect, at age 13, was it basically like having a musical bat mitzvah? In a way, to, yes, because I also had a bat mitzvah that year. Of course, there was 13. So it was, um, yeah, it was a very important year. How did those two performances rank? <laughs> Let's say they were two incredibly important moments in my life. Yeah, eighth grade was a big was a big year for me. <laughs> you think after high school you'd go straight to conservatory like Juilliard or Curtis to continue this musical education, but you end up at Columbia University studying of all things Russian history. Why the left turn? I was still performing during college, of course, and I knew that that was what my life path was going to be. But having grown up in a musical household, having also taken most of the conservatory, let's say, undergraduate courses in high school, I really wanted a different kind of education for university level education. And um, I've also, I wanted to make friends in different fields and I, I'm a nerd as well. And I wanted to, wanted to read and learn about different things. Well, for yeah. most people getting a BA in Russian history is hard enough, but you did it, it was hard. while performing <laughs> and while forging a professional career. When did you yeah. sleep much less study? I didn't sleep. Um, I didn't sleep for four years, probably a night, or maybe like, I don't know, four hours a night or something during the school year. I would catch up on sleep in the summers. <laughs> so, uh, but you yeah. know, when you're 18, you can do that. You can get away with it. Um, but my junior year, I, I really uh, kind of overloaded with classes and I was performing quite a lot. 
and I would stay up till two and then I'd wake up at six to go to Starbucks to study and I would practice at night. So yeah, I burned the candle at both ends for sure. Well, clearly it worked because just a few years after graduating Columbia, you'd find yourself at the White House performing for the Obamas. Not many people get an audience with the two most powerful people on the planet. What was that experience like? It must have been amazing. I mean, I think it's no secret where I stand politically. So I was thrilled to be there and I was thrilled yeah. to meet them. And uh, and their girls were, they were school age at that time. And so, I mean, so the whole family was there and the, and uh, Michelle Obama's mother was there as well. So I met all five of them and they were sitting in the front row in the East Room. And so like having them there was just, it, oh, it was just so thrilling. Um, and then he... Uh, you know, he, he announced all of our names, all of those that were performing. And, and sorry, he says, and, and um, Alyssa Willerstein. And he clearly you know, struggled. And I thought, oh, well, you know, he said my name, though. I was just happy. <laughs> <that he did. laughs> and then uh, there, there was David Shrebnik from Sirius XM Radio at the time. He announced my name correctly. He said, Alyssa Willerstein is now going to play Kodai Solo Sonata or something. And then the president kind of looked at me. And then thanked us all by name, and then he got to my name, and he said, "Alisa Weilerstein." <laughs> <laughs> so it clocked with him. Oh, definitely. And then you know we got the chance to you know to shake hands and take a photo with him afterwards. I mean, it's as as they do in in sort of in events. And, and then he said, "I apologize for mispronouncing your name, but I got it right the second time. You heard that, right? You got an apology from the president of the United States. That's huge. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing." It's clear that your career is littered with amazing accomplishments, but I want to talk about your latest one. It's a solo concert series of you performing called Fragments. You created and developed the idea. It's really a new concert experience, and it sounds amazing. Can you take me through what a concert is like and talk to me about the genesis of this somewhat revolutionary idea in classical music? Well, um, the genesis was during let's say the height of the lockdown. So it was de like December, 2020. And I think everyone had their own, let's say personal low point during the, during lockdown. And um, mine was then. I had 15 projects cancel in as many days. And I just was like, you know what? Hell with it. I, I put the cello away for like two weeks. I didn't touch it. And, um, you know, I just took some long walks and was trying to reflect on where we were. And then I, I forced myself to take the cello out again and just kind of staring at the window playing scales. And then I thought, you know, we're kind of, we're going to have to come out of this somehow. Let's try not to waste a good crisis. Let's see how, how can we recover? How, how is it going to look when we can finally get back in the concert hall together? And so I was thinking about how to do that. And then this idea, you know, kind of flashes of inspiration don't happen so often, but when they do, they're quite fun uh, to play with. And so I just started scribbling ideas down on pencil and paper. And then I started to compile a very, very large group of 27 composers that are varied in every possible way um, in terms of age, gender balanced, also racially and ethnically very diverse and uh, nine different nationalities. So it's a fantastic group of people, great musicians, great artists. And um, I asked them each to do the same thing, which was to write 10 minutes of music for solo cello in two or three fragments that could live alone so that I could intersperse them with movements of Bach and or movements of, of other new music. And I didn't want the audience to have a program in their hand in real time. 
I just wanted to create a kind of hypnotic, visceral experience and a very direct experience so that they that the music would just hit people without context and without all, sort of baggage around it. So what you would receive when you go to a performance, the fragments, I hope you do, um, is you get general information about the project. You would get the list of composers that are specifically on that program. And you would say that this program will last approximately one hour and there will be 18 different fragments on it. That's all there is. And then at the very end, you get the full menu of what you've heard. You know what you've created with this. I mean, this is an 18-course tasting <laughs> menu of music, yeah. right? Where you just sit mm -hmm. down, you don't know what you're getting. And I love the fact that there's nothing to read. There's so many times when I go to a concert and I find myself more interested where the person went to college and I'm reading about their hobbies and not really listening to the music that they're making. You hit the nail on the head. It has always bothered me too that I feel like I know more about the person than what they actually want to say. And... Well, of course, it's wonderful to find out about people, particularly if you like their music. This is this is great. But I'm in the moment and in, in a performance, you're more interested, hopefully, in what in their true voice, which is through their music. And so uh, I, I wanted to kind of recreate that. Well, when you're busy performing on stage, can you actually sense the audience? Can you feel that connection? You can always feel when the audience is with you. Mm. Always. And um, I can say with the Fragments programs, and I've, I've done it now a few times since the premiere in January, you could have heard a pin drop in the hall. And so, and the t kind of the tension in the, in the hall was really palpable for me on stage too. And so, I, I mean, you know this too, for, for when, you're, when you're playing. When the audience is there with you, there's nothing like it. When you feel like yeah. you're really having a conversation. Yeah. Musicians and conductors can have somewhat adversarial. Musicians and conductors. I like that. Well, <laughs> you know what? That wasn't even premeditated. That just came out. <laughs> Sorry. I guess I should have said instrumentalists and conductors can often have adversarial relationships, but you mm -hmm. seem to have found a conductor you get along pretty well with. It's your husband. Raphael mm -hmm. Payare, who's the music director of the Montreal Symphony Orchestra and mm -hmm. the San Diego Symphony Orchestra. What's it like to be married to someone whose day job requires them to tell people what to do <laughs> and when to do it? Well, we're not married because of that, you know. Uh... <laughs> you might be married despite that. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no. no, I mean, let's see, how, how can I frame this? In terms of, the, say, our, our working lives, our artistic lives, I actually think we are extraordinarily similar in terms of the passion for what we do and the way that we experience music. I, um, I very rarely met somebody like that that I, that I truly share that with. Um, Let's say that, that I really connected with on, on, in that way. I mean, this is not an Oprah interview where I'm going to just spend the rest of the time gushing about my husband. But right. uh, there's something so pure and so deep about the way in which Raphael experiences and emanates music from his whole being that um, it's very, it's really palpable. This is my experience. 
as an audience member listening to his uh, to his concerts um, with various orchestras, not not only the OSM or, or San Diego Symphony, but with with everyone that he works with, um, but also playing with him. I mean, I played as a, as a soloist with him many many times, and that is um, it's a thing that we that we share. Okay, last question, and it's been just great talking to you. Oh, it's been nice talking to you too. So. My wife's family's from Cleveland, and oh, cool. she still has relatives there. And, and when we visit, I'm obsessed with the subtleties of the Cleveland accent. But despite having grown up there, you have zero of it. <laughs> Thank you. Was it a conscious effort, or did it just kind of leave you? <laughs> no, it just left. I, 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 don't, I don't think I ever had it, though, actually. Yeah. I, I, um, one of my hobbies is mimicry. I, I, I love mimicking different accents. Really? So I'm very aware of accents and I was aware of the heavy Cleveland accent and I was very conscious not to get it. I didn't I didn't want it. So <laughs> could you mimic a Cleveland accent if you had to? Yeah. Of course. That's pretty good. Do you want some Mel? <laughs> Say for me, I think our river is on fire. No. <laughs> I, that that was before my time. It's too soon. I get it. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed this episode of Speaking Soundly. If you like what you heard, please tell your friends about it. Spread the word. Be sure to follow, rate us, and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. To keep up on future episodes, follow us on Instagram at speakingsndly and visit our website, artfulnarrativesmedia.com. Tune in this September for a brand new season of inspiring artists speaking soundly. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.